as you've just seen on the video, we're starting a new series today that we're calling Reset. And the reason is you need it. You ever notice that through time and use, wear and tear, things usually have to be reset. How many of you are looking at a front end alignment anytime soon because of the potholes? Your front end needs to be reset. You ever working on your computer and all of a sudden it needs to be rebooted? Your cell phone periodically needs to have a hard restart. You ever watching a football game or a basketball game? Sometimes the referee blows the whistle toward the end and said, would the timekeeper please reset the game clock too? Because through use, through mindless error, through problems and circumstance, wear and tear, we need to reset things. Now, add to that, we live in a culture that bombards us with messages, narratives, narratives to live by, narratives to read your life into. And in case you haven't noticed, almost all of those narratives have different priorities than the Bible has. All of those narratives portray and call us to different values than the Bible does. So we live in this context where we're bombarded with messages calling us not to what the Bible says, but to something different. So time and use, wear and tear, means that we need to reset. We need to recalibrate. And one of the reasons we get together every week, one of the reasons why God in his wisdom says, you need to kind of step out of normal life for a while, gather with other people who believe the same way, and think my thoughts, read my narrative, reset your heart and mind to what is true. So that's what we're going to do. Now, we're going to do that by looking at the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Now, the first 11 chapters of Genesis are where it all gets started. Creation gets started, human beings get started, and God kind of sets them out on this trajectory. And this morning, we're going to see that a good, wise, and loving God does all of this creating. But through time and use, sin and rebellion, wear and tear, chaos soon enters the picture. Now, what we're going to discover, even in those first 11 chapters, is that God is not content to let that downward spiral continue. And so God regularly resets what he started. We're going to see that in a couple of weeks. He does that early, right in Genesis chapter 3. There's a little reset. He does it again in the flood. He kind of resets. He does it again at the Tower of Babel. And he does it repeatedly through the Bible. Little resets. But in case you haven't noticed, the spiral is downward. And there really isn't a great change to that until God does the ultimate reset. The big reset to which all the little resets pointed. And that's the coming and the ministry the death and resurrection of Jesus, the ultimate reset. But there are little echoes of that throughout the whole story. So we're going to take a number of weeks, we're going to look at how it all gets started, and we're going to see how God resets, which all of the little ones point to the ultimate one that comes when you turn from the Old Testament to the New Testament. But I don't want you to think that we just have this general, hey, we need to reset, and the Bible has this regular reset theme. I want to begin the series by asking you a question. Does anything need to be reset in your life? 
Your tax day is coming this week, so it's probably a, a reset, maybe financially. A reset priority-wise? A reset values? Are there decisions that you know you need to make that you've been putting off? Are there things you living for, you're living for that you know they're not squaring with what God calls you to? Does anything need to be reset in your life? Maybe at the beginning of the series, you need to say, God, what are you calling me to reset as we walk through the reset of Genesis and the ultimate reset that we find in Jesus? So if you have your Bibles, or if you're using an iPad, I wanted to say this forever, turn to page one. <laughs> we, usually don't, we usually have like 649. Turn to page one. Now, I'm not going to read all of chapter one and chapter two. Um, I'm just going to read the first few verses. Then I'll jump down to read the last few verses, kind of the beginning and the end. We're going to camp out in Genesis one for a few weeks, uh, but I want to kind of get started. We'll look at the big picture and then we'll come back and pick up some of the pieces. Now, if you read through Genesis, and I encourage you to do that, read through Genesis 1 to 11 a number of times these next few weeks, it's going to almost seem like we have two creation accounts, right? We have Genesis 1, that's kind of big picture creation. Then all of a sudden, Genesis 2, it's a different creation. No, typical uh, to Hebrew literature, you have kind of the grand picture first, and then some particulars teased out secondarily. So Genesis 1, the universe and all that exists gets created, God says. And then in chapter 2, he focuses in on human beings, kind of the pinnacle, the crown of that creation. All right, so here we go. Page 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. He called the darkness day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Now jump down to the, to the end of that week in verse 31. The end of that week of creation. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all of the work of creating that he had been doing. Well, that kind of raises a question, a question we need to answer before we wrestle with the details of what's going on. And that is, what's the purpose of this Genesis account? Now, you know, most believe that Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, right? Called the Pentateuch, Pent just means five. Moses probably wrote the first five books. Well, what's going on in Genesis one and two? In case you realize it, Moses was not there. Right? So he's not an eyewitness to what's happening. God obviously revealed this to him. Well, what's the purpose of it? Well, let, let me just say right up front, we often approach Genesis, particularly the beginning and other parts of the Bible, we often approach the beginning of Genesis with the wrong question in mind. Here's the question we approach Genesis 1 with. How in the world did God do that? How long did it take? How did it all work out? That's the wrong question. God does not answer the how question. God's answering two other questions. 
that in many ways are more important than the how question. Here are the questions God answers in Genesis 1 and 2 particularly. Who did it and why did he do it? You want to know the truth of the matter? If we can answer the who question and the why question, the how questions kind of fade into the background. You could wrestle with some of that if you want and read this and that. But I'll tell you what, you can come up with different answers to the how question and that may not change how you live a lick. But if we can answer the who question and the why question, that'll radically change how you think, how you believe, the priorities you have, and the decisions you make today, this week, and the rest of your lives. The purpose is not how. The purpose is who and why. Well, let's kind of give a panoramic answer, first of all. Well, the first purpose was to teach. Now, contrary to what you may be thinking, or maybe not, um, there were lots of other creation accounts around when this creation account gets written. Now, you got to remember, so if Moses wrote this, Moses was educated in the most uh, wise and most um, glorious schools of the world, right? He was raised in the palace and in the educational system of Egypt. He was aware of a whole bunch of other creation accounts. And now I have to tell you, I've read a few of these. If you want to read like science fiction stuff, you read this stuff. Here's normally how those creation accounts go. There's usually blood, there's usually guts, there's usually death, and there's usually violence. That's how all the other creation accounts work. These stories usually go like this. These two gods were warring with each other. The victorious God slays the defeated God, and out of his guts, and out of the slime of the ooze, he makes the universe. Huh. Well, what does God want to teach? He wants to teach This is what really happened. This is who did it. And this is why this is all here. There aren't two gods that are equal. The universe wasn't fashioned out of violence and death and blood. The universe was established by an all-powerful, good, wise, loving God. The universe is created out of love, not out of hatred, violence, and death. So in the midst of lots of creation accounts, God says, let me teach you who and what, who and why this really happened. Well, secondly, influence. Now, here's what I mean by influence. If we really can come to grips with the who and the why, it'll influence, I said, how you think, how you live, the decisions you make. You've heard me say this before. If not, you're going to hear me for the first time. The author has authority. If God is the author, then he has authority. And just to show you that, you know, when I kind of prepare a message and think, I actually apply what, what I'm learning, right, what I'm thinking. And I did that this past week. It's not quite there yet. And here's what I did. The author has authority. I was reminded of that sitting there. Hey, you know what? Maybe if the author has authority, that works for our car, too. Uh, a little bit of background. Uh, our car lease was up, and so it's time to turn it in and get another one. I have news for all of you. Now is not the time to lease or buy a car, all right? Just in case you're wondering. Like, the interest rates are... But, but if your lease is up, you need a car, right? 
So I go and get this car and come home. And they have these little buttons on the door that I become used to. And since Kim drives, sometimes I drive, sometimes we're, we're not the same size, right? And so, but they have these automatic buttons that you can automatically set and adjust your seat. And so Kim gets in and she, okay, do the mirrors to the seat. Okay, good. How is that? Okay, I'll set that for you, honey. And I go over, set one. Nothing. No beeping, nothing. She leaves, gets out. I get in the car. Um, mine doesn't work. I adjust mine, set two. That's not working, right? And so now, still, when we get in the car, we have to adjust the seat and adjust the mirrors because I haven't figured this out yet. But I did go online this week and figured out, hey, you know how, here's the problem. We have two key fobs. You can only have the one key fob that is associated with driver one in the car. If the second key fob's in the car, it's not going to set driver one. And so if only one key fob's in the car, set and hold, hold, set and push the set button until you hear a beep. If you hear a beep, release the button. Then you've got like a couple of seconds to set number one. And well, I haven't done that yet, but I'm guessing since the author has authority, that's how I'm going to set these seats. I can do it my way. How, a million times it's not going to work. Yep. Why did God give us Genesis 1? To influence us. If he really is the one that made all this stuff, he knows how it works best. And if we're going to live in this world so life works, we're going to live in sync with how the author designed it. He gives it to teach who and why, and he gives it to influence us to live rightly rather than idiotically. It's kind of how it goes. All right, here we go. What do we learn about the creator? Now, we could spend lots of time, and uh, we, we're going to do that over the next number of weeks, but I, but I want to tease out a couple of things. I've said a few of these already. Here's what you learn from Genesis 1, Genesis 2, that you're not going to learn in any of those other creation accounts. God is good. God is wise. God is loving. You're going to learn those things. Over The other creation accounts don't have a creator like that. And this creator is powerful, right? What does it say? God said, and it was so. God spoke all that exists into being. He didn't work up a sweat. He didn't have to put on work gloves. He didn't bend down. He didn't get all messy. He speaks, and everything that exists, comes into being. A powerful God. But you know what else you learn? This God is a trinity. Now, I mean, that may not be provable from Genesis 1 and 2. It's certainly not contradicted. It's not provable. But we, we do see something of a plurality here. Let us make man in our image. The Spirit's hovering over the waters. We're told in John 1 that Jesus is the creator. We're told in Genesis 1, God is the creator. So somehow mixed up in this scheme, God is the Trinity. And that'll change your life. Only Christianity has God as a community. Community isn't something God does. Community is who God is. You heard Jess talk about small groups? Since God has existed in eternity as Father, Son, and Spirit, it still isn't good for us to be alone because we're made in that image. And so to try to live life alone is to live against your nature being built in the image of a community. We need to live in community. That's how life was designed. 
because we're in the image of a community. And you know what that also means? Love is an eternal quality. Love isn't something God does. Love is who God is. In eternity past, Father, Son, and Spirit, knowing each other, loving each other, serving each other, deferring to each other. Community, a loving, knowing community from all eternity past. So you need to remember that. And sometimes it's hard to forget, right? Genesis says in the beginning, but God doesn't begin at the beginning. God doesn't have a beginning, right? It'll hurt your head, I know. Into eternity past, right? There was always Father, Son, and Spirit. Into eternity future, always Father, Son, and Spirit. There was never a time when God wasn't Father, Son, and Spirit. Love, community, part of who he is, part of who he made us and how we need to live. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and God did it all by speaking. That's amazing, right? Well, what do we learn about the creation then? So that's kind of the creator. Here's what we need, need to learn about creation. First of all, we need to learn it's good. Um, in case you haven't realized it, there are lots of worldviews out there, lots of systems out there that almost lead us to believe that the things out there are bad and you shouldn't really be experiencing them. Um, in fact, this is kind of like all experiences that are positive are guilty until proven innocent. That's not what the Bible says. In fact, the Bible's much more American than that. The Bible says, all your experiences of pleasure are innocent until proven guilt. Now, that doesn't mean everything you experience pleasure is, is good. It means they're innocent until proven guilty. Think of it this way. So God makes all this stuff. Mountains, sunsets, trees, flowers, pollen, animal. Don't ask me about the cat thing. I'm, I'm still working on that. But God makes all this stuff. And along with making all of this stuff out here, here's the radical part. He makes all this stuff out here and he creates us with senses to experience that and to be awed, comforted, and pleasured by that. What kind of a God would do that? A, a good, he puts us into creation that's good to enjoy that. Creation fires our senses. Creation causes us to be overwhelmed by things we see, overcome by experiences on the inside and the outside. God gives us senses to experience his good creation. And that's a good thing. That means creation is to be enjoyed. It's not just good. It's to be enjoyed. So here's how that works. Lots of, I don't mean lot, many Christians almost live according to the negative will of God theory. Did you read this? Here's how the negative, theory, negative will of God theory works. I've got a big choice here in front of me, right? A or B. I'm not sure which one to take. Okay. Which one will be most miserable for me? That must be God's choice, right? It's kind of the negative will of God theory. Whatever's going to hurt the worst, whatever's going to bring me more pain, that must be God's choice. What? No, creation is good, and it's to be enjoyed, and it's designed that way. It's designed that way. Um, I don't know why I have cars on my brain this week. Um, I have a friend. Uh, he has a Tesla. I'll tell you what, those are, I'm never going to have one, I don't think, but I mean, this thing can fly. It can also do a lot of other stuff. 
it drives itself. Like, you don't have to put the brake on, don't have to steer the thing, you're driving. I say, I, so I'm driving down 309, I said, well, how do you switch lanes? Just put the turn signal on. Put the turn signal on, it shifted lanes. I said, how do I get off the highway? Put the turn signal on, it exited the highway. Slows down at the right speed limit. What do I, do I stop it? No, no, it'll stop. It stopped, put the turn signal on, we turned right. We're driving down there, he said, pull into that parking lot. I grabbed it, no, no, don't grab the wheel, put on the turn signal. Put on, it pulled into the parking lot. It stopped, and then he says, watch this. He owned a giant computer. When you buy a Tesla, you're really buying technology with wheels, right? I'm not sure it's a car. but um, So he hits this button on this giant screen. He hits the home button. No lie. That car drove us home. I never touched the steering wheel, never touched the brake. It made all the correct turns, pulled into his driveway, and he said, if I was driving, it would back into the driveway, back into the garage, and close the garage door. That's scary, right? (laughs) Now, let me ask you a question. Um, Given enough time and, you know, enough circumstance and enough accidents in life, like a Tesla would just assemble itself, right? That's what we're told in our world, right? We're told, given enough time, time, chance, by accident, all that this stuff has arrived. What? You don't live that way any, any other area of your life. We're supposed to believe that crock? Like, what? It's, in fact, everything is deteriorating, and we know that. Your clothes wear out, your shoes wear out, your thinking kind of goes as you go, right? Relationships deteriorate. Everything's deteriorating except the big things. Everything's getting better, and Teslas can form themselves, give it enough time. Watches will just kind of assemble themselves. Cell phones popped into being. No, this is designed, friends. And you would have to be blind to the evidence to look around at the beauty and to see how everything syncs up perfectly. You realize one little iota of difference in this, one little change in that, and everything collapses. By chance? By accident? By design. Creation's good. It's to be enjoyed, and it's designed by God to that end. So we've looked at the creator, creation. Well, what are some principles that we can... uh, kind of tease out of that. Well, you knew we were going to get to this part, so here's the first one. Oh yeah, it's finite. Uh, Here's the point of it being finite. Um, The ancient folks would often worship, honor, and esteem parts of creation rather than the creator. Oh yeah, but the more things change, they they don't change, right? Do people still worship stars? People still worship the sun? People still worship bits and pieces. What? Why not worship the creator who built all that stuff? Last night, Tim Hawkins had talked about creation and a creator just in a couple sentences. Here's what he said. He said, how many people walk up to a beautiful painting in a museum and say, oh my goodness, look at that sun. I've never seen a sun like that. Look at that tree. What? No, we honor, esteem, respect the artist that painted the painting. If you have a song, a piece of music, you don't say, what notes? How, why did they put the G before the, I, I better stop there. Yeah, why did the notes go this? Oh, the notes are wonderful. No, the composer behind the music. 
Why, when it comes to the universe and life, don't we do the same thing? And so, enjoy creation. Recognize it's designed. Recognize there's a good, wise, loving God behind it. And here's what you should do. Enjoy it. Your senses are fired by what's God, what God's made. But here's how you do it properly. As you're experiencing that joy and excitement, allow your thoughts go from creation to the creator, the designer. Give thanks and allow your thoughts to go to the destination when this creation will pale in comparison to the new creation. When maybe we get 10 new senses, we don't know. But we do know this creation is a pale pointer to the next creation. That will be using creation properly. Well, now we get to some principles. Here's the first principle, and you knew we were going to get here. We need to submit. We need to submit. I have a paper here. I typed this out a long time ago. And periodically, I pull this out because I need it. And when I think about creation, and I think about my response to the who and the why, for some reason, this short paragraph can often snap my perspective correctly. Oh, yeah, it can kind of reset it. Listen to this. If the distance between the earth and the sun, in case you didn't know, remember from school, that's 93 million miles, right? 93 million. That's further than you will ever drive, right? 93 million miles. So if the distance between the earth and the sun is 93 million miles, and that's represented by the thickness of a sheet of paper, not the width, right? The thickness of a sheet of paper. You got that? You following? So if the distance between the earth and the sun, 93 million miles, represented by the thickness of a sheet of paper, then the distance from the earth to the nearest star would be 70 feet high of paper. 93 million miles, the thickness of a sheet of paper. The distance from the earth to the nearest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. Gets better. The diameter of the Milky Way would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. And God spoke. And all of that popped into being. And Jesus holds the universe in the palm of his hand. And it would fall apart the next second if he didn't hold it together. So here's my question. What do you do with a God like that? Do you ask him to be your secretary? Do you ask him to be your assistant? Or do you cower and bow before him? And say, my mind cannot even comprehend what you've made, let alone consider who you are. And you made, and you made me, and you made us. That's the who. The why is you submit and you follow a good, wise, loving God like that. That's what you do. That's the influence. 
And what's the next thing that we do besides submit? We enjoy. We've talked about that. We enjoy our relationship with God. We enjoy creation. We live in the joy of knowing who he is, what he's done, and how we're to live in light of it. And here's one more thing. And we work to rebuild it. Remember we talked about, you see this paradigm that kind of goes through scripture. Um, In the beginning of Genesis, God sets everything. And then chaos soon happens. And then God resets it. You see that in Genesis 1, right? God creates, but, and then there's chaos. God then resets it. Sin's going to come in chapter 3, and that kind of discombobulates things, and God resets it. And repeatedly through the Old Testament, right, chaos, and God resets, and God, until ultimately Jesus shows up, the ultimate reset. That's the paradigm. Which means, if we're going to get in step with that plan, we're not only going to submit We're not only going to enjoy, we're going to work to rebuild working for what the original intention was. And so we kind of know who and we know why. Well, then we will be living life the best we can to put things into that order. Have you ever noticed uh, around the house, things break, deteriorate, fall apart, have to be fixed. Now, I try to ignore that as long as I can. Because when you ignore stuff that's broken or needs repair, certainly preventative maintenance doesn't work. Because you do that, it's going to be very inconvenient. Until all of a sudden you have a disaster. And you say, why in the world didn't I do that earlier? Well, we're living in a world that's deteriorating. And maybe it's time for some preventative maintenance in your life. Preventative maintenance in your marriage. Maybe there's some rebuilding needs to happen in the family, in your larger family system. How about your team at work? How about in our church? How about in small groups? What are you going to work to rebuild and to reset? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about for the next number of weeks. But I didn't want to close this morning without reading at least a few verses from the ultimate reset where the Apostle John obviously thinking about Genesis 1. When I read this, you're up. Oh, I know what he's thinking about. But he continues the story a little bit. Let me read what John writes in John chapter 1. In the beginning, sound familiar, was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Up oh, there's second person to Trinity. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of all mankind. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. But boy, it's been a downward spiral since then. But then we read in verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Christmas. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but they did not receive him. Yet to those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent nor human decision or husband's will, but born by the will of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Everything's on a downward spiral. 
You're proof of it. I'm proof of it. And everything in our lives is proof of it. One thing we do know, the ultimate reset is the story that we mention and talk about every week. God said, enough of this chaos. I'm sending Jesus. The reset has begun. Let's be part of that deal, huh? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for how it all began. Forgive us for not just uh, listening to the narratives and the values and the priorities of our world, but often living in light of them rather than living in light of the ultimate story. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to not just reset our thinking, but reset our living over these next few weeks as we look at your creation, the chaos that results from sin and rebellion, but the reset that finds its ultimate conclusion in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.